The third season of Westworld explores questions about the nature of our reality. The third season is hailed by Decider as a technical masterpiece. Nominated for 11 Emmys, including Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Jeffrey Wright and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Tandy Newton. As we all learn to live and work in the pandemic, Hollywood studios are still trying to figure out how to get back into feature production. But one new micro-studio, Invisible Narratives, led by former Paramount studio head Adam Goodman and Disney EVP Andrew Sugarman, have figured it out. They've already completed their independent thriller, Songbird, starring K.J. Apa and Sophia Carson. The movie shot over the summer in downtown L.A., using new COVID safety protocols that complied with Guild regulations. Goodman and Sugarman are here with us today on Crew Call. You know, Songbird is one of the few feature productions to actually shoot during the pandemic here in California. And tell us about everything, developing it, getting it off the ground, and getting it to this status where, hey, we can go. We can go with this. Um, it's, it's a funny one because there really wasn't development. Development and pre-production all started kind of at the same moment. We, like everybody else, were pondering how we move forward in our business when the pandemic struck. And we had been planning for a long time to make all sorts of productions and everything was uh, thrown off the board because nothing seemed possible. And all of a sudden, Adam Mason and Simon Boyles, our, our writer and director, uh, came in with an idea. And it just felt so urgent and so compelling and weirdly possible to make during this time simply because it was about capturing the moment in time that we were living in. And so uh, the movie really evolved as being something that initially was meant to be much smaller in scale. And it never got gigantic in its production, but it was obviously got, uh, got, got grew as time went on. But I think that it was just a notion of wanting to stay busy and feeling a need to create at a time where everyone was telling us that we couldn't. How long was production shooting? All told, we were less than 20 days. Wow. Those and do you think that, you know, like right now, and I've been told that this could get solved soon, but the studios and the unions, I think, are still hashing over safety protocols. Um, do you think indie, independent features have it easier, or does it depend on the production? Like you said, this was something that was very feasible to get off the ground. You're not talking about a massive, a massive crew. You know, it's... I'm just curious, is it easier for indies? I think footprint is what makes it easier. I mean, physical production departments at studios are, are the single best uh, uh, problem solvers of any, of any people that I know in the industry. So if anybody can figure it out, it's the teams at the studios and at the streamers. They've got, you know, they've got all the resources and the abilities and the creativity to do it. The problem is, is that they're tasked with making movies that employ hundreds of people on any on any given day. So I think an independent film has an advantage, not because 
they're more nimble, uh, but they're more nimble because of their size. And I think size is really what's going to be able to make uh, the, the amount of productions uh, to be accelerated because everyone else is experimenting at this point, which is what's daunting. How and, and I think that, yeah, I just add to that. I, I would say also that um, you know, Invisible Narratives as a business was already going down the, the road of figuring out how to have more agile productions with, um, with smaller crews that would really capture more authentic um, style content. And so when the pandemic did hit, we were sort of in a, in a really good position because we used what we had already identified that would have happened outside of the pandemic to enable us to get this production up and running during the pandemic. How big was your crew? More or less. It fluctuated. I don't think there was any day where the crew was more than 30 or 40 people, but it was impossible to tell um, because you know we employed these zones. And so at any given point, you really never felt the, the, the scale that it was too small or you never felt the scale that it was too big. It felt just to be the right size to be able to capture what we were doing. The, was there ever any sacrifices in, in the sense that you had to shoot during the pandemic, like, like fewer extras or, you know, or, you know, uh, a minimized set, oh, yeah. like, you know, in terms of your build, you, you know, what, what, you know, production sets you would build. We, we, we benefited because our movie was about capturing what was happening in the world. We have a, a little bit of a sci-fi bent on it because our movie takes place uh, a number of years in the future, but it still was a movie that was taking place during a time where there was a virus that was plaguing uh, you know, our characters. Um, but there were so many things from the scale of, uh, of, of extras, the amount of people that were in any given scene in any given time, stunts that would have required close proximity to, you know, to, to stunt uh, professionals working in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, there really wasn't anything that you could take for granted in a normal production. Everything had to be looked through through the COVID lens, which made things a challenge and in some ways created creative opportunities for us as we were, as we were making the movie. But everything from a, a normal production was inverted because it was just different. Can, can you expound on your safety protocols and how you did things? There's, there's a couple of different, I believe, production philosophies. There's the pod unit where everybody kind of, like I think what they did on the Zendaya, uh, uh, Sam Levinson film, where they all went up to uh, their production site, which was one location at the Caterpillar House up in Carmel, California and everyone quarantined for a couple of weeks. And then there's a whole other philosophy of having people commute in. Could you, could you expound, and, and this is a big question because um, tell, us, tell us everything from testing, et cetera, down to catering. Sure, um, well, uh, you know, an enormous amount of uh, almost all of the credit of, of being able to do this was because of our partnership with, uh, with a company called Catchlight. And that is uh, a, a company that is composed of a guy named Jason Clark and Jeanette Voltero and Marcy Brown. And they are partners in production and invisible narratives. And 
the approach was to keep the shooting unit as, as small as possible. We went by, we went with the zone approach. We were not in a pod. We didn't have a bubble that the, you know, the, the crew was, you know, needed to live in or, or uh, people had lives afterwards, but it was about testing. If you were a part of the A crew uh, or the A uh, zone, then you were being tested probably close to three times a week. Um, and that was the, that was where the actors and the uh, camera, AC, AD, the director, but just a very small unit of people. Um, when they were on set, uh, there was, you had the ability at points to not wear a mask, but if somebody from the B unit or the B zone came up, then everybody had to mask up and to, you know, to take more personal protection in the process of it. B, B zone was tested frequently as well, um, but that was between minimally once or twice a week and sometimes three times a week, but not, not always three times a week. And then the C zone was uh, really more where, uh, you know, the trailers were and where base camp was. And those who were in the C zone had uh, probably testing just once a week. Catering was box lunches. It was not a, you know, it was not a, it was not a, a, a catering line that we're used to. Um, there was an on-set medic and nurse who, who was responsible for, uh, for testing. There was a COVID safety officer. Um, our props and our, our uh, equipment was all sterilized. And every night we would send a cleaning crew through to make sure that everything anyone was touching was disinfected uh, for the next day of shooting. Um, and we were, and they were making it up as they went and you know just always with the air on the side of safety um the dailies were remote there was no video village it, it really did not if you drove past this this movie set you would have a hard time knowing that there was a movie being shot in any of the locations it just it just looked different than anything you've seen before and you use locations downtown we were downtown. We were on the. We were in Bel Air. We were in uh, the Beverly Hills Post Office area. I mean, we were really throughout town. Um, and uh, and 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 the movie is a uh, is a is a story about Los Angeles during these times. So we needed to show both the West Side and the East Side and Koreatown, and we were all over the place. Which was pretty cool. Well, who would have been considered to be in your B zone and your C zone? Would it be production units that may not have frequently interacted with the actors? Yeah, more camp, you know, more techs, more uh, production support. Um, everything, you know, when, when you came onto set, everything was pre-lit and everything was pre-set so that once the actors came into their, you know, to the A zone, they basically were able to work and they were able to shoot in a 360 environment and that was, it had a fringe benefit of being able to capture quite a bit of material very, very quickly. But the, but the reason for it was to minimize the amount of involvement of other people being in this space and running whatever risk that there was of having more people uh, along uh, for the ride. Um, the B zone was, um, were, were, there were camera department people and grip and electric and you know what you would normally find uh, on a movie set, but there they were way less. Um, uh, they had gone onto the set in the morning. They prepped their locations. They would bring something up, but only were able to go in 
once the A zone is cleared out. David, if you want to fall out of your seat laughing, you got to watch HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show. It's a sketch comedy series with performances by a core of Black women, including Robin Thede, Ashley Nicole Black, Gabriel Dennis, and Quentin Brunson. They all portray an array of dynamic and varied characters, as well as hyper versions of themselves and interstitials featuring four friends stuck in a house during an end of the world event. Nominated for three Emmys, including Outstanding Variety Sketch Series, watch HBO's A Black Lady Sketch Show. So how are the guilds, as as you were preparing safety protocols, how were your talks with the guilds? Were they open? Was this a long, was this a, uh, almost like a, a multi-month long process of getting clearances before you shot one frame of film? So, so I would say the guilds were, were actually very open to working with us as partners and figuring out how to stand up this production. Uh, you know, the, obviously the town had been shut down and we really wanted to get a production going in the midst of this and to be the first here in LA to have that production going. And really it was working in partnership with them to identify the, all of the concerns that would come from not just the guilds, but also we were working with different health uh, organizations. What were all of the requirements coming at the state, the city, the guild level, so that we were employing not only best of breed, but going beyond that. And so we kept on that, having that dialogue with all of the guilds in terms of what we were doing, getting their feedback and ensuring that, uh, that we were in a relatively quick pace getting through that process. So it was not a month's long process because the speed with which we went through development into production was actually quite quick. And so while we were going through development, we were having those conversations with the guilds. So I would say it was, um, you know, multiple weeks, but not multiple months. Did, did they, you know, it's funny because with the movie theaters in the States right now, the philosophy from the movie theaters has been let us tell the government what our safety protocols are so that they know that we're being responsible and it's not dictated to us. Was that a similar situation with the guilds? Was that kind of like, listen, we're going to do things like this, or was it an open dialogue? Was it more like they, they were already setting out guidelines? They, they, they had definitely already begun going down the path of setting guidelines for ensuring safe environments for um, all of their guild members, um, which was, was great. It served as definitively a guide for us. And then as we were going through and thinking about the type of production we were looking to do, as Adam mentioned, we were shooting across LA in different types of locations. We wanted to make sure that not, not only were we in compliance with those guidelines, but we were really thinking through how to ensure we were doing this um, tied to our specific production. So we would come back to them and tell them, these are the things that we were looking to do, where we were looking to shoot and how we were either taking their guideline and adjusting it and asking, is that in line? Um, so it was really a give and take um, versus uh, just, you know, follow these and that's it. Did you guys come up with any unique safety protocols of your own that you take pride in that, um, 
that uh, maybe others can learn from that weren't that weren't um, given to you? I, I give it to you, Adam. I was going to say, go ahead. I think, uh, listen, there was a lot of thinking that had gone into the making of this movie. Um, and, and again, I cannot underestimate our partners at Catchlight and their relationship with the guilds and their relationship with uh, key stakeholders at the guilds and, and, and them being able to pull all the best thinking that was out there. Um, it's hard to know what's ours and what was theirs uh, and, 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 and who gets the credit for it. All I know is that we were, uh, we were tasked with and, and had tasked our, our partners with trying to find a way to get productions back up safely. And everything that they were doing, every department was asked to look at what was really the, the best approach to be able to mount the movie and to capture the film that we were, we were making. And yet at the same time, be able to not be beholden to a hundred years of legacy of filmmaking technique and processes and, uh, and to challenge their way of thinking to say, okay, we have to do things different to get this up and going. And I think that the, uh, that the movie will, 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 will be an accomplishment for a long time in that it was first and it was done safely. And yet at the same time, if we go to a set six months from now, I'm sure that they will have much greater efficiency and protocol and processes just because it will be a little bit more time tested and conventional wisdom will start to come to, uh, to light. But I think considering that it was first and there was no one to check or to ask you know, for precedent from, it was pretty exciting what they were able to accomplish. Did you, look, it's not unusual as, as films get back into production to hear of situations where there is a COVID case. Did that happen on your production? No, thankfully. Uh, we had a big spotlight on us. And if, if, uh, if we had a COVID case, that would require everyone in that crew to quarantine for two weeks and we would have been shut down. So, so, so if you had one, the situation, the situation would have been, you would have had a, you would have had to shut down the whole production. If that person was in, was in contact with everybody else on the set, just like any other quarantine situation. It, it was one of the benefits also with the zone um, approach where if there was a case, we could isolate where that individual was and the people that were around that individual uh, at that point in time or over time. So, uh, so we would have been able to try and break it down to figure out, is it the whole production that's getting shut down or is it specific areas or groups that would be shut down? Or a zone. Or yeah, a zone. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you've got, you've got such a great cast, uh, you know, with, with KJ Appa, um, getting the actors on board. Uh, was that, was that an easy, was it an, a feasible feat to cast? I mean, at this time, actors are in need of work uh, and great work. But at the same time, there might be some out there that are kind of not rushing, rushing to get back to work just until everything calms down. How, tell me about the casting process. I would say uh, almost everyone that we spoke to was game and down for doing this. Uh, all the actors and their reps wanted to understand the safety protocols. Uh, there were a lot of conversations to make people feel comfortable with what we were doing. But I think the actors, just like our crew and just like uh, our, our creative team behind the movie, everyone just wanted to work. Everyone wanted to 
be a part of documenting this period of time. And again, because the movie was was about something that was taking place uh, at the moment we were making the movie, that's an unusual opportunity. How, you know, Hollywood stories are, are normally done in the rears, whereas we were we were starting to put this together in the midst of the lockdown. So I'd say we, there was maybe one actor that we went to at past because they didn't feel comfortable coming out to work and everyone else was yes, when, how can we be helpful? We trust what you guys are doing and uh, they were they were phenomenal partners. And, and I think also adding that, that the, when we went out to cast, it was really around the May, April, May timeframe when if you think back, the lockdown, like true lockdown had been in place for about four to six weeks and no one knew how long that was going to last. Um, so there was a lot of uncertainty that was out there. And at the same time, I think that that sense of uncertainty and anxiety, um, I really gave the cast uh, an internal motivation to want to go out and do something. And as Adam said, express this moment in time, uh, which was for us, you know, over the last hundred years, this is unique, like, and, and to capture it in the moment. As far as um, financing this, the bulk of this was it was it your company, as well as as Michael as as Michael Bay. This this production is uh, self financed by Invisible Narratives. So and we, and then um, um, installing all of these safety protocols. Did it take the budget from point A to to point you know to point G? as far as raising costs or was it, I don't know, like the movie, the movie theaters talk like, oh, it's not that much more expensive for us to clean in between shows or to, to install some of these safety protocols. It's not really in general, publicly, they talk, the big circuits talk like it's, it's not going to eat into our bottom line. Did you feel the same thing on this production? There was definitely a cost associated with ensuring we had the most, safe and, and you know, secure environment for cast and crew. Uh, and there was a, there were, that cost uh, carried through into the budget. But I wouldn't say that it was um, at a level that was financially uh, detrimental to what would be viewed as the revenue and, and, and margin on this type of a production. But it, it, was, it, it was essential for us to, 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 to do the production. And so even when we started budgeting it from the very, very beginning, it was one of the first line items that we had in there um, and ensuring that there was enough money being allocated for it. How are insurance companies now? Are they, are they basically, I mean, they're getting up with the times. Yeah, I would, I, I would say that, that they're now getting, getting up with where we are at this moment in time and that the, the industries are beginning to look at ways to get back to work and back in business and the insurance companies are moving with that. I think some of it's going to take a little bit of time still for it all to sort through. Uh, but we, we found, um, you know, in working with the different uh, insurance entities as we were doing this, that we were able to, to make it work. Before we go, I want to talk about um, Invisible Narratives. Tell us about launching it. I, I know that you, you launched just pri prior to the pandemic, but um, your philosophy... And what and, and about your next project with uh, Phase Clan? So we believe uh, that there is a generational gap that's taking place right now, 
in, uh, in how content is produced, which we've just spent time talking about, but also in how content is being consumed. Um, if you look at the, the decision makers at the studios and the streamers, you have a lot of executives that are in their mid-30s who are the ones that are out there tracking, bringing in talent, and developing material to be produced. And uh, they're, they're as sharp and as, and as uh, well-versed cinematically as anyone is in the world. But they have children, and their children are, are probably two to three years old, maybe four years old, but they're not really yet at a point where they're able to capture and see how their kids are starting to consume content. So as a gray-haired guy, not Andrew, myself, um, I, we both recognized how our kids were starting to consume content. And we recognized that there was a, a giant opportunity between TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and the delta between that and the sort of premium that everyone was looking for, that there was an opening in between to be able to, uh, to service an audience that felt relatively underserved in the type of premium events that they were actually looking for. And, and to, to jump on that, we, we did it by combining the power of the most engaged digital fandoms out there with world-class Hollywood storytellers in order to develop new properties, new IP, new stories. Uh, and, and that's perfectly demonstrated with our project with FaZe Clan, where we brought a world-class director like Greg Plotkin um, together with an unbelievable gaming esports brand like FaZe Clan. It truly is marrying one side of, of Hollywood with one side of digital uh, media and digital storytelling. So is your next project a, a FaZe Clan feature or is it a, another type of project for, for uh, another medium? No, it's a feature. Everything we're doing right now is, is in, the, in the feature space. Uh, and um, it's, uh, it's funny, you know, Hollywood got obsessed with IP. And, uh, and, and I know this because when I was at DreamWorks, we were involved with launching Transformers, which at the time, everyone thought we were crazy for working on a movie uh, that was based on a toy from the early 80s. Uh, but if you were a kid growing up in the early 80s, that was as real to you as anything was in the entire world. Um, there are creators that, and FaZe Clan being a, a, an organization uh, that, that we identified early on, that have as much reach and power and relevancy with young people as Transformers did back in the early day. You know, parents don't necessarily understand it, but the, but the young people who are engaging with it every single day, they get it and it's real to them. They don't look at movies as being, uh, you know, kind of a, a one type of content and phase plan being another type of content. They look at it all as just being entertainment. Uh, the challenge has been trying to find a format and a technique that is authored in a way that feels authentic to them because things either get overproduced and if they get overproduced, then that authenticity seems to go away or they get underproduced. And if they get underproduced, then the sustainability of your attention span to it really only can merit a, you know, a 15 or a 20 minute viewing of it. So the opportunity here is to, to really bridge a tradition, a traditional, a 
approach, which is the best of tr traditional storytelling and franchise management and brand development, but a digital technique, which is authored in a way that, that feels very authentic to the audience that's consuming this type of content. How, um, I bring up Blumhouse just because they have everything under one roof. They're editors, they're sound editors, and they, they assemble everything um, right over there in, in downtown LA. Do you have a similar philosophy when it comes to streamlining? Yeah, you know, what Jason's done so smartly is he's built everything in house, which has been able to keep the teams consistent, and there's, you know, the, the, the vocabulary is always the same vocabulary and they're following the same rule book for every movie. There's a 10 commandments that they stick to and they adhere to in, a, in an incredibly disciplined way. Same for us. Um, although we liked it, Jason was, uh, Jason was a pioneer and has done incredible things. We're, we're a micro studio. We look at it even in a, in a even more, uh, 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 in, a, in a more strict way as far as budget is concerned. Um, there is a filming technique that we have inherited because of a process, and we talked about it with Songbird, that, you know, is well, well, well uh, deserved for, for regular movies, but these are a different type of stories that we're telling. And so our production technique is, is, is very different. And so post-production, pre-production, and physical production are all done in-house. And that gives us a streamline and an ability to get to scale. Uh, which is what's most important for us. My last question, um, on your next production, the safety pro, you know, these, these new pandemic safety protocols, it's, is it just, is it going to be easier? Is it going to be easier for you to implement? I would say that, uh, uh, I mean, easier in that we learned a lot um, through Songbird, and uh, we it, it was a very safe environment for cast and crew. I think taking what we saw in that production and bringing it into our next is obviously uh, uh, critical. Um, I would say we're, we don't want to sit on our laurels and say, that was it. We got it right. We don't have to keep looking for ways to do it better. So I would say every production, we want to push and say, what else, what else could we do to make this an even more safe environment um, that's in line with, with what we're learning, both about the pandemic itself and the types of productions that we're putting together. So I would say easier, but never, never enough so that we are sitting still. Visible Narratives, Adam Goodman and Andrew Sugarman, thank you so much for joining us on Crew Call today. Thanks for you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.